You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest... Hi everyone, this is Annie for Showreel on your community radio station 3CR. It's a little look at things to do with the Australian image world. Today I have the absolute pleasure to talk with Amanda Brown about winning three gongs at the recent Actor Awards for her music scores for three different pieces of work, Baby Teeth, Brazen Hussies and The Secrets She Keeps. Here we go. Congratulations on all the wins. Yes. Most unusual. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you've actually had a fairly illustrious career, I'd have to say. Uh, You turned towards uh, uh, writing music for screen 20 years ago. Can you tell me a little bit about how you felt when you began your journey into uh, writing film music? Yeah, well, as you say, it's been quite a long journey, 20 years, and um, that's when I graduated from the film school. Um, It came about because basically I found myself in my late 20s with a young baby and a realisation that um, a career in pop music had a very limited lifespan for a woman of a certain age. And so in order to keep working in music, I went back to tertiary studies and did a music degree first and then um, a postgraduate diploma at the National Film School afters, um, which in hindsight sort of it seems like the perfect thing to do, but it was actually suggested by a good friend of mine and because uh, it was the first year that they had screen composing it at um, afters, um, but I'd always been interested in the visual medium and have lots of friends who are artists and played in bands with performers and performing artists. So, in a way, it made sense. Well, it's a way of making um, having a day job when it comes to the thing you actually love to do. Yeah, that's right. And look, all musicians face those struggles and um, I, I just had Lindy Morrison around at lunchtime actually and we were talking about this very thing and uh, I was saying that I really think it's it's harder than any ever at the moment for musicians and we all need to work, we're all constantly working out ways to make our jobs sustainable and particularly this year has been a huge challenge for everyone. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the film music um, thing I, I look on as my 
as my full-time job now and I have for some time but I've really only made a, a reasonable living out of it in the last four or five years it took a long time to build up well, that's really interesting considering how important music and soundscapes are to um the success of a, a film uh, it's interesting too that the awards you've received this year original score for feature act, actors best original score documentary and uh, music award for best tv series they're incredibly different uh, types of film scores aren't they <laughs> Yeah, they are, and that is sort of the best and the worst thing about being a film composer in Australia because um, our industry is really quite small and we don't specialise in the same way that they do in Hollywood, for example. So you might get somebody who composes exclusively just in the horror movie genre or just in comedy or whatever, people tend to get sort of pigeonholed and super specialised. But here, because um, we just don't have that, we don't produce the amount of of products that somewhere like Los Angeles does, that we, we sort of get forced to um, be constantly challenged. But in a way, I, I much prefer that because... It certainly means that our jobs are never boring. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be boring. So tell us about how you would actually approach, um, <laughs> how would you approach any project? How, how do you choose a project? Or does a project choose you? Or is it just because you need the money? Oh, no, definitely the project chooses you. I mean, I, I do know composers that chase certain jobs. Um, I, and I've never really felt very confident about doing that. Um, and I, I sort of think it's a bit of a futile thing anyway. I, the, the usual procedure is that um, the director or the producers of the of the film have a composer or um, two or three composers in mind who they'll approach. And if it's a few composers, often you'll get asked to pitch for a job. So it's almost like an audition for an actor where you write a piece of music or you um, basically pitch your ideas for that project. Um, so you're often competing with other composers. So that's that's usually how the job... So you must have to do a lot of work to prepare yourself for, for not getting a job, potentially. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Um you do sometimes do a lot of work, uh, a lot of unpaid work if you don't end up getting the gig. Um, but the the sort of the silver lining, if there is one, is that you sort of you can stockpile pieces of music that you've written and use them in subsequent <laughs> films if they're suitable. And and often they are suitable. So. Um, nothing that you do is ever a waste in the long run, I don't think. Mm, makes sense. Makes sense. So uh, one of the things, yeah. I was speaking to the person who was the director uh, and writer of um, Judy and Punch, and the uh, she spoke about how the music was absolutely essential and they used a whole, the composer used a whole lot of um, found objects 
to do the work. But the point was that she didn't feel very confident about her own musicology. Uh, he was very helpful, but without being oppressive. But I noticed that the person who is uh, the writer-director of Baby Teeth was very clear about what she wanted and obviously had some skills in musicology. Would that be true? Well, she was certainly very definite. This We're talking about Shannon Murphy, the director yeah. of Baby Teeth. And even though this was her feature film debut, she had directed um, a, quite a bit of television and before that was a theatre director. So she had a lot of experience working with actors and a really great appreciation for music. And often I think with film music, one of the things that, sets you apart at the end of the day because there's a lot of people want to do film music and feel that it's an area that they can work in. And a lot of people could probably deliver music for the jobs, but I think ultimately it comes down to aesthetics in a way and it's your own experience and musical taste that you bring to the job and that's quite a unique thing. And um, and Shannon really appreciates that. So with Baby Teeth, quite a lot of music had to be pre-written for that film because two of the characters are musicians and they needed to learn how to mime convincingly for the film. But also um, I gave her a whole playlist of songs and pieces of music that I thought just spoke to the characters and and the heart and soul of the film and and she used that playlist and played it on set when they were shooting. And um, and that's something that we also did with another series we worked on together called On the Ropes. So it's it's really interesting the way that music, even if that music doesn't end up being in the film, it sort of permeates the making of the film. And, um, yeah, Shannon was very prescriptive about not wanting music that... Um, emotionally manipulated the viewer. That's fascinating. Actually the job of Yeah, that's yeah, right. it's actually the job of film music in most cases, but she was very much no no, I don't want the music to do that, which is why there's not a lot of a lot of score in Baby Teeth. Um except for the final cue, which is a six and a half minute cue where finally she was like, Okay, we're just gonna let all the emotion out now <laughs> And so it was a really interesting process and very different from most directors who who do want the music to underpin the emotion most of the time. Yeah, and uh, uh, create suspense and do a whole range of the elements that to, uh, to do with uh, emotion and flow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she she's very different in that respect, I and mean, it, it's. It's almost like that um, dogma school of filmmaking that came out of Scandinavia in the 90s, which I guess when you look at it holistically is very much that, like like grunge was happening in music, that movement was happening in film where it was uh, no artifice, so no artificial lighting, very wobbly sort of cameras without tripods and... No, and little to no music. So it's a really kind of naturalistic way of filmmaking. And I think it really suited 
baby teeth because it was potentially the subject matter could have been like very sentimentalized and mawkish, but it wasn't because Shannon took that approach. So that really means that in a way you were a collaborator uh, off the scene with ebb and flow, really, as opposed to in uh, ever present as a musical presence in the finished item. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, pretty much. Mm, um, that's really interesting. A director like Shannon is she is very collaborative, and she puts a lot of trust and faith in her heads of department, and gives a lot of creative free reign, while at the same time being quite definite about what she wants. So, I think it's a really it's it's quite a fascinating way to work and um, you have to have that trust. If a film is even more collaborative than music, there are so many people involved and so many different creative opinions. It takes a, a, a definite and specialised skill to be able to bring all that together. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Also, uh, it's nice having someone who's leading the uh, the trick as it were, amongst the uh, treacherous terrain. Yeah, exactly. And and I guess that's the nice thing about having been working in film music for a while now. I feel like, um, you know, I've got something to contribute and the experience to be able to draw on now. And all that's taken a long time like anything. Um, but it's um, you feel that you can bring something different to every project, which is very necessary in our industry. Well, I think it's very interesting moving on to the feature documentary, Raisin Hussies, which I think my listeners would be particularly interested in because it's a profile of uh, the uh, eclectic group of women who were a part of uh, raising a political consciousness during the uh, 60s and 70s in Australia. And uh, it says that uh, they had the idea that they, who, the filmmakers had really had the idea that they were going to use female punk bands. Uh, but you, you uh, obviously lent your broader scope to the uh, project. Would that be right? Uh, yeah, they had already... I, I came on board to this film quite late. It was um, right at the beginning of lockdown and COVID earlier this year. And um, so I had a very short amount of time to do it and they'd already laid in quite a lot of tracks of female punk bands ranging from the cable ties to like some really probably long forgotten but fantastic bands like the Stray Dags and Toxic Shock and the Ovarian Sisters um, and all that the energy of that music and, and X-ray specs, um, bondage up yours, songs like that, that had this like really vibrant energy that suited the that the rising protest movement that was became women's liberation so well. Um, but in terms of score, um, I felt like the score needed to place the film a little bit more in the decade that it was set, which was 1965 to 75. And, I mean, obviously there was a lot going on in music then, but popular music was really exploding um, in terms of rock, sort of psychedelic rock and folk. And um, so I wanted to include elements of that. So it's quite a, a guitar-based score, and which sort of has its own 
energy, but also um, sets it in the period. You're on Showreel on 3CR, and we're talking to Amanda Brown, winner of three actor awards uh, recently for her work in, in music. So how do you, uh, you get the rushes and then you sort out how you're going to fit in the score? How, how does that work? How does it work? Give a, an idea of, to a person who knows nothing. How would you go about it? Okay, well, once you've got the job, you um, the music is almost one of the last things to be done. So the film, in most cases, has been shot and edited and what we call locked off, so there's no more changes to the edit. And then you have what they call a spotting session where you sit in a room with, well, in, in this year you sit in a Zoom <laughs> with the director, <laughs> the director, the producers, um, sometimes the editor, sometimes the sound designer as well. And you talk about all of the sound that's going to be laid in. So not only the music, but also what the sound design is doing. And it's important for the composer to know that because, uh, for example, if there's going to be like a massive explosion in one scene, it means that you don't really want the music to be going into the same sonic territory as the explosion. Otherwise, they just sort of cancel each other out. In regards to music, you basically decide where music's going to go and why is music there. What purpose is it serving? Is it is it an emotional thing? Is it a is it a attention, momentum, adding pace and rhythm to the scene? Is it a diegetic cue, which means is it a cue that the characters within the world of the film can hear? Um, which a lot of the music in Baby Teeth was like that because uh, I was saying before the mother and daughter characters were musicians, so. Obviously, the music they play is diegetic music. Mm, yep. um, and, yeah, so you you basically plot out to exact time codes where music will sit and how it will function, and um, and then you go away and, and write it. <laughs> so, so the uh, music uh, the the music dovetails with the um, sound uh, landscape. So the sound landscapes uh, that's two different people: the music and the person who's thinking about the overall landscape of sound landscape. Yeah, it, that's right. That's two different departments, but very related departments. So, um, uh, in the case of Brazen Hussies, it was pretty much just basically me and a guitarist <laughs> in the musical department and in the sound design department typically they'll have somebody working on sound effects which is yep. things like you know, gunshots, walking, whatever opening doors, you name it yeah. uh, well walking and opening doors that's called foley that's another person's job usually yeah. and then um, uh, dialogue editing is another person's job where they, they clean up the, the dialogue and they record any additional dialogue that needs to be done. And then they have a, um, a final mixer who whose job it is to mix all the sound and music together and, and just make it work, make it coherent. So, I mean, you can see just from that, there's a, quite a few people involved, but 
again, our industry is small, so in Hollywood they might have like maybe 20 people just in the music department, um, whereas we just have one or two. <laughs> <laughs> and you know where each other lives. <laughs> yeah, well, we all know each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, with The um, uh, the Secrets She Keeps, which is a, a, a series, was there time constraints or what What were the special elements to doing an episodic uh, affair over time? Yeah, well, TV series are quite famously very fast turnaround. Yeah. Typically you have between sort of one to three weeks per episode. Wow. Which is not a lot of time. No. Um, for a one-hour drama and... Um, with the secrets she keeps, there was a, quite a lot of music in that show as well. So typically between sort of 20 to 25 cues of music per episode. So scheduling and time management is really crucial when you're working on something like that. You basically have to set yourself a timetable where you work out, okay, I'm going to have to write two cues every day for this film in order to meet the delivery deadline. So it's pretty intense, I want to say. Like, you can do some really long hours. And, I mean, composers aren't the only ones. Um, I think editors do some crazy hours too and sound designers. But, um, yeah, it's pretty nuts with <laughs> scheduling. And um, off. honestly, the more time you have, the better it's going to be. The thing that's amazing about this uh, collection of awards that you've received this year is that uh, it was amazing to discover that uh, you're only the second woman in 40 years to have received the actor Best Original Score for a Feature and the first in 15 years. Yeah, well, that trail was blazed by Elizabeth Drake, who is a Melbourne-based beautiful composer who wrote the score for Japanese story. She was the very first woman to win the actor for best score. And yeah, there's been nobody since. So it's been pretty thin on the ground for women composers and famously underrepresented. And really only recently are women composers really getting some decent jobs and getting a go at film music and, Really, it's about time. <laughs> and I hope that we'll see many more coming up. The accolade is fantastic because, of course, you've got new work coming up. And as you said, it took it's uh, uh, over the last, say, six years, you've actually been making a living out of this. And I'm assuming with the awards, you'll, get, you'll make a bigger living out of it, hopefully, because uh, it's all about trust and hope. Um, but... Um, did you get anything else other than accolades? Do actor recipients get anything other than accolades, just as a matter of interest? Um, well, they get a golden statuette-looking thing, but to be honest, mine hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> it's probably in the post. Um, so, no, it's look because it was this year, everything was online and virtual ceremonies as well. So. Um, it just, on one hand, it does seem like a bit of a non-event because 
you don't get to go and party with everybody and celebrate the way you normally would. Um, so you feel somewhat ripped off in that respect. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's a bit like having a birthday on social media. You get lots of really lovely messages and um, from people f- from all over the, the music and film industry. And really one of the, the loveliest messages I got was actually from Elizabeth Drake, um, the first woman to win the award. And she was just lovely. She was, you know, I'm so glad to see that someone else has come along <laughs> and I'm so glad it's you. So it was really great. That was that was honestly the best message to get. I think more study and research needs to be done to ascertain why women are so underrepresented in this area. But um, uh, I would hazard a guess that it's a combination of factors, but quite a big factor being, as you said, trust. And because there isn't a history of women in this role and filmmaking is a big expensive risk adverse enterprise I think there was perhaps a feeling previously that to not take a risk and and to use tried and trusted composers but of course when you're a, a composer coming up through the ranks and particularly a woman composer if you don't get the, those chances, you don't get to build that reputation and prove yourself. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. I noticed that the three projects, the leading um, lights are female. That's, uh, you know, the three projects you worked on that were so fantastic. Were, uh, it means that uh, female directors, uh, people in charge of producing, all that type of stuff, it, uh, women are... Um, uh, standing their ground now. That's true. All three of those projects had female directors and producers. Yep. Um, and there has been a big shift in the film industry in recent years, and they actually had gender quotas um, because our industry is, for the most part, government-funded. And, I mean, it's a no-brainer, really. If you If you're going to be funding films from the public, you need to reflect the public and that's half the public are women. <laughs> Sounds like obvious thing to say, but really had not happened until I would say the last five years or so. And that's because um, women just finally um, had enough and got very bolshy about it and it was it actually became um, part of funding prerequisites and, and there was um, an, an active and determined push to uh, fund more female-centric projects helmed by females in key creative roles. So, look, it's as you can see, it's made a big difference to the industry and it, it's it's still has a way to go. I don't think we're fully seeing ourselves reflected on our screens yet, but 
it's a lot better than it was. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Amanda, and congratulations once more. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Amanda Browns on Showreel on 3CR about her award-winning work as a film music scorer. In a past life, Amanda was a member of the Go-Betweens, so it seems only fitting to salute her once again with her work. Also, Brazen Hussies, for those who are interested, is showing at selected cinemas right now. Talk to you next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.